welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, once again here with Freya Spence. And today we're going to be speaking about something that's become very popular in uh, social media, pop culture in general, and that's the topic of longevity. So we're going to speak about aging, anti-aging, and health span. Um, as we get started here, I just wanted to remind everyone you can find us uh, on our website at movewelldaily.com or on Instagram at move underscore daily underscore eds. So within today's podcast, we're going to give you some concrete ways in which you can self-assess movements uh, or tasks that are correlated with health span and longevity. But first, let's discuss what aging is and what anti-aging is. Freya? So aging is uh, typically defined as a natural process by which uh, there is decline or deterioration of an organism's physiological functions, which affect things such as um, well, reproducing and um, the ability to fend off illness and disease. So it, it is typically something that a lot of us will expect because, you know, we think of this as uh, old age. Um, we see it as something that is, you know, inherent to being a human being. A lot of other species also do this as well. <laughs> uh, all other like species all of them? <laughs> Uh, do this as well. So it is something that we see as like a, a natural process and a natural pl- process that does include decline, um, but not inherently a disease state in and of itself, even though aging can be, you know, correlated with an increase um, or increase in il- illness burden or, or the uh, acquisition of disease, I suppose. Yeah. Exactly. So Dane, on that note, though, what is anti-aging? all about anti-aging on the flip side is the opposite of what freya just said no more okay i'll give you more anti-aging aims to maintain uh, or achieve a state of youth irrespective of chronological age so it's basically to stay healthy and biologically efficient Uh, anti-aging takes the point of view that aging is a disease state Uh, when views when viewed as a disease as opposed to just causing disease it is seen as something that can require medical treatment. So this is something that became quite debated a few years ago, and the World Health Organization was actually really close to labeling aging as a disease. Um, when they heard, when they, when researchers heard that this was maybe going to happen, uh, they really pushed back against the World Health Organization. And in t- 2022, when they released their new database on diseases, aging was not in there. And so a lot of researchers, you know, gave a sigh of relief. Whereas the people who were pushing this... Um, Some of which are also researchers, to be clear. Yeah, there yeah, are fair. There's researchers in both camps, just to That's be true. crystal clear. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's more researchers who then are on social media more than out or have podcasts. That's why this message was getting out there so clearly, because aging was never something that was viewed as a disease until very recently when we had these platforms to speak about it. Um, So you might have heard David Sinclair or uh, Peter Atiyah, they were really pushing for this to happen. But in the end, uh, the WHO came out and said that they didn't want to perpetuate ageism by labeling aging as a disease, um, countering by saying aging is the cause of a disease and not just a disease itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, both camps, it is tricky because both camps are arguing that 
um, viewing aging as a disease is ageism, but viewing age not viewing ageism as a disease is also ageism. So it is uh, definitely like they're both sides <laughs> have their reasons behind why they view it as ageism. Um, you know, anti-aging and that sort of search for youth is really not a, a new thing. This is something humans have been trying to do for a really, really long time, trying to find that sort of uh, fountain of youth or that secret trick that will quote unquote fix aging, um, as if aging is inherently the problem. And um, you know, the, one of the interesting things I learned in this past year in terms of the roots of some of the anti-aging efforts is that there was a physician in, uh, or yeah, he was, a, he was a surgeon at one point, but also did a fair amount of research, uh, in, in fact, with like a lot of cross-species stuff, so injecting humans with like pig's blood and that kind of thing. Um, you know, ethics are different around research these days. Uh, and in the early 1900s, he actually um, took tissue from monkey testicles and sewed them onto humans. Notably, the testicles were sewed onto male humans' testicles. So it was like a tissue transplant, like a, almost like a skin graft, essentially. And the promise here was that this would uh, restore youth. It would uh, cure signs of like an aging body or an aging brain. And the promise was also that this procedure would allow people to live until 140. And that seems to be a really common sort of like 140 to uh, 150 seems to be a really common promise within anti-aging, um, I, I suppose, advocates' messages uh, throughout the ages. <laughs> uh, no pun intended there. So it is really important to, to know that this is not new. Granted, the, the people who are promoting uh, aging as a disease uh, or are viewing it as a disease, whatever verbiage is, is more accurate, they are definitely using more sophisticated technology, and they are not proposing something as, as extreme as, you know, sewing mon monkeys' testicles onto uh, male testicles. Um, this Good to know that's an option, though. Uh, no, not an option anymore. Like, totally unethical for so many reasons. Um, poor monkeys. But <laughs> point is, this has existed for a really long time, because in inherently a lot of us are afraid of aging and how we view aging is is really really important in terms of our understanding of it and in terms of whether we will you know buy into it be it being a disease in and of itself or not and so um you know it is one of those things where we have to be really careful about the verbiage that we use and that's where the world health organization and then uh some of the practitioners within the anti-aging group like who are obviously um, at the moment in opposite camps um, obviously the they're both arguing how important changing the verbiage or maintaining the verbiage is and I, I completely understand that but uh, when it comes to viewing age as a disease I think what's more important is um, that we start looking at sort of what drives this industry and what's driving the push behind changing this name, and uh, where there is validity in terms of uh, us reframing how we view aging, because I, I don't think that we should, uh, personally, don't think we should view it as a disease. I also don't think we should view it as the, this just like 
terrible decline either, then that is my personal opinion. So I, I think that there are opportunities to change the way in which we speak about it, um, to try to get rid of some of the, the ageism um, that really doesn't doesn't allow for any potential within aging, which is counter to what I have observed as just a person living my life and observing friends and family members who are aging, uh, my own body as it ages, but then also the clients that I work with. And so I think it just within any anything, there's always um, some sort of potential. And when our verbiage is either that it's a disease state or like a horrible fragility or anything like that, we, we do ourselves really a disservice in terms of how we experience our present moment and um, how we experience certainly our, our body. Yeah, and, and within this discussion, I think we really need to, to first ask, like regarding aging, like is aging itself a problem or is it bad or is it the lack of function associated with aging that's not great or the lack of cognitive abilities that's associated with aging not good or the a bit like it's the diseases associated with aging that are bad you know we have to really drill down to what is the actual problem we're trying to solve so that we can decide what is the solution that's going to be most appropriate and so I really had to put this in when you were talking about you know living to 140 or 150 and you said this has been around for a long time it's even been around as long as Parks and Rec has been on the air with Rob Lowe being like scientists believe that Somebody has already been born who's going to live to 150 years. Yes. I believe I am that man. Yes. So this is a very lo highly, hotly debated topic as long back as, what, 15 years now? So anyway, that's probably one of my favorite shows and a great quote. But let's get into longevity and the topic of anti-aging. So we've, we've been kind of convinced at this point that this is a problem. And, you know, there used to be, I remember growing up, there used to be, like, anti-wrinkle creams and stuff oh, like that. Those like, still exist. Well, they still exist. <laughs> <laughs> womp womp. Of course they still exist, but when I was younger, I feel like that was, you know, especially in um, female cosmetics, there was a lot. That was the big anti-aging push, even just as far back as, like, 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. Now this is a $180 billion market. So something has changed, Right. And is it just the advent of social media or how we, you know, how we can communicate now? We can get these ideas out there. I think it's important to, to think about that. And, and that gets us into the, like the, the idea of bias as well. Mm -hmm. It is also the um, the fact that like with with a lot of the products before they were targeted to like superficial things that we could see as signs of, of aging. Um, but now a lot of the products are, are targeting internal processes that people don't necessarily understand super well. And that's where, you know, some of this bias also also comes in. That, well, and that's exactly where I was going to go with that is if you look at the people who are the loudest speaking about anti-aging, usually you can find that there might be a bit of an agenda behind that. So <clears throat> this is the equivalent of you getting a recommendation from your healthcare practitioner for something that taps into a fear you have, not realizing that they own the company they've recommended you purchase from, right? Like that's a bias. And so if you look at anybody on the internet, for example, if that's where you're hearing this message and a lot of the anti-aging message is coming from that, look into that implicit bias. Are there supplements behind 
what's being pitched to you? Is it tapping into a fear that you have inherently? Is it a topic maybe you don't know a lot about? Like telomere length gets thrown around or, you know, you get into these ideas of uh, autophagy, like cell death and this biology that's really thrown around. And when a doctor comes on the internet and starts speaking about that, it can be really like, wow, okay, this is something serious that I didn't know about. Maybe I can reverse aging by listening to this, right? This guy takes it, maybe I can take it and it can work. So it's just having that critical thinking that's really hard these days. When you get a message and you hear it from all sorts of angles, it really makes it harder to think critically about yourself as an individual and what might actually work for you. So always look for that inherent bias. Um, and even going back to social media and what you just spoke about, it, living to 140 and 150, it reminds me of um, all this stuff I've been reading about with Brian Johnson. I know we've discussed this mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. He's obviously a fascinating human because he's very, very rich. I forget exactly how he made his money, but he spends $2 million a year on anti-aging just for himself. He's basically doing all these self-experiments uh, on his own body. He's getting, like, blood transfusions from his son. He's, you know, eats, he takes 100 pills a day or something like that. All sorts of weird stuff. He does electric shock on his private parts to make sure they stay young. And there's some really yeah. interesting things happening in the world about this. Yeah, <laughs> and he's definitely, yeah, he's been in the news quite a lot. Yeah. I, think, I think I've seen his name pop up in various uh, conversations mm -hmm. and then also in uh, various news outlets over the last six months especially. I'm not sure if he did something <coughs> new that uh, stood out in particular or it's just that one news outlet caught wind and then all the others picked it up which is often <laughs> the case um but it was interesting because even with like the blood transfusions uh from his son to see if you know that would reduce his um you know biological age from a blood marker standpoint i found that interesting because it's like transfusions um ha have been have been used in the past, like in the 1800s and 1900s when people were trying to figure out how to make somebody look younger and they didn't have the same sophisticated technology to measure certain markers uh, to be sure. And, and I've seen some of the images where they would take like pre and post pictures of, um, of their, I suppose, patients or participants in, in, willing participants in the research. And it was this belief that if, you know, if we, um, give somebody a transfusion from another uh, person or species that is younger than them or, or that is believed to contain this fountain of youth, that, that the individual receiving the transfusion will uh, live longer or, or be more youthful all over again. And um, none of that has, has been proven to be true historically. Granted, this is like at least... <laughs> perhaps matching blood types and uh, they would share quite a bit of, of their genes. But I do find it really interesting because it, it just taps into the same sort of search for that like fix somewhere. There's this one thing and if we take this one thing, it resolves all these other processes in our body. And I, I do think that that also speaks to how much we don't understand about the system as sophisticated as um, things have become. And it is fascinating with what what we have learned about the body uh, throughout, the, I mean, honestly, the last several hundred years, um, I, I still think that there is like this inherent sort of magic in our system in terms of its ability to regulate based on the inputs, or, or thrive, I should say, based on the inputs that we give it, that we just can't hack, you yeah, know? Exactly. Especially and not with a supplement. No, and that brings up 
the point of like we don't know a lot like our research on all this whether it's nutrition or sleep or exercise or supplements the biochemical processes that we think we're impacting when we take a drug that we don't know what are the domino effects the cascade of impacts that can have on other systems it's it's so young all of our research and all of our knowledge on this that the, it's it's changing all the time. Like stuff that we thought were like concrete information maybe 40 years ago is totally changed. Five years ago, changed now. And so, you know, Brian Johnson, he's he's doing all of these things based on the knowledge that we have right now that he thinks is going to give him all this longevity and make him live a really long time. Power to him. He can, you know, do that. But but he he can't know for sure that it is actually correct. It's going based on the best information we have right now. So we don't actually know if all these experiments are actually going to help him or if nothing's going to happen or maybe his genetics are just going to predispose him to be an age. Maybe all of us are predisposed to be at a certain age. We really don't know this information yet. Um, and so, and the other little point is a lot of research is based on longevity. So it's health, uh, not health span, but lifespan. How long is this thing going to make you live for? But within that research, we don't know how, how good was the quality of life within that longevity or, or lifespan. So maybe we can extend life by 10 years, but is that 10 years of active, happy living? Or is that 10 years of not really being able to do much, maybe not happy, maybe not feeling great? We just, we just don't know. And so the research part of this is still so new and not entirely clear that even when something is being promoted as this next big thing, even if it's being promoted like that, it's based on the best information we have. We don't even know if it does what it does. We don't know if it does what it does. It's very convoluted. Well, and science is driven by curiosity and, you know, being being very aware that we don't know. Um, it, where it, it where it's tricky is when we see a certain amount of research and someone extracts, you know, the the components of that uh, or like the conclusion of that um, interprets interprets it in their own way and then places heavy emphasis on like one uh, yeah supplement or molecule or or what have you being the thing that will resolve all these other things it's like when it can get misinterpreted whereas versus um, just accepting that it's like okay we learned this thing this is what we theorize now this is what we think now and now um, let's go look further into XYZ but when a product immediately gets pushed from something that is really more exploratory in nature it is challenging right and there there is that sort of implicit bias um, and you know with with this industry as a whole like all the anti-aging supplements um, it's very much like the weight loss industry in fact it's bigger so the weight loss industry is huge it's valued at somewhere over 80 billion dollars and um, the longevity one like Dane mentioned is a hundred billion dollars more than that and I think that you know these have been in, well, they're long-standing industries, um, and they have tapped into people's innate sort of fear. And anything that taps into our fear can typically drive quite a bit um, of, well, revenue. <laughs> uh, sales go up, essentially, whenever it's something that taps into our fear, because as humans, we're, we are afraid of things that um, will make us feel bad. That's pretty normal, I would say. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are also afraid of um, making a mistake in the sense that 
we don't necessarily want to take on the risk of not being correct. So if somebody says, if you take this, it'll help you live two extra years. Instead of really questioning that and having confidence in our own decisions and choices, we might take that thing because we're afraid of being wrong about that thing not increasing our lifespan. If that makes sense, I know that was a bit convoluted. I did want to read a quote, though, that I thought was um, interesting because really how you view aging really, really matters in this entire discussion. It matters um, if you think it's a predetermined thing that you carry no influence on. That's different than if you uh, see it as being a predetermined thing, i.e. we are all going to age, but that you do have influence on. And that is the distinction between longevity and health span. Longevity is like how long you will live. Um, but if you believe that at a certain point, and, and this varies uh, heavily like based on the society that, that you might be in, but if you believe at a certain age that's where decline happens, um, that's different than someone who believes, oh yeah, we might have the same end point longevity-wise, i.e. average uh, total age, but I don't believe there will be this like sure thing as far as a decline at age, insert age here, <laughs> I drop off the map in terms of my function. And so, um, you know, your perspective really, really matters here because if you believe that you carry some level of influence in terms of your health span and, and the quality of those years, then your behavior will reflect that. If you think that it's all predetermined and that it is a disease state that you don't have control over, then how you behave will reflect that. And the Guardian, about I, I think it was earlier this year, produced an article with 100 quotes by centenarians. And so uh, I can't remember the top age that they had there, but everybody was, you know, between like 99 and 115-ish. One um, person, Leona Rothfeld, was quoted as saying, nothing is the same as it was. You experience things different, uh, sorry, in different ways. It's part of living to go along with whatever is available at the time. And so based on your own lived experience, and this is half of her quote, you might see that as a negative of, oh, well, nothing is the same as it was. She was actually explaining it in the context of her quote was, or of this particular part of her quote, was her celebrating the fact that she was able to do things now at 103 that she was literally not allowed to do 90-odd years ago. And so um, it was a positive view, the full context of her input here, was a positive view on how aging brings about changes, and change can be really, really good. <laughs> So this is not to deny that aging, um, you know, brings about some challenges, and I'm, I'm making that very light and brief. I have had, um, you know, what I consider to be the privilege of having relatives who've lived into their 90s, and I think that that, um, I would of course have to ask them of their opinion, <laughs> and some of them I have, but I think that that has been, I've been very lucky because I've also seen a lot of um, my relatives, even ones who have passed a bit younger, really live life uh, fully. So I have gotten the message that aging is not something that just is like this hard and fast ceiling effect where it's like, I'm this age and now I can't do anything. Uh, I've seen, you know, I had a relative in her 70s who decided to enroll in language classes at one of our universities, um, whereas someone else might have thought, oh no, I'm, 
too old to learn an, uh, something as complex as a new language. I've had um, a great uncle who uh, did a cartwheel at 80. Now, uh, that was unique <laughs> based on his background as a gymnast and stuff, but, um, you know, I've been able to witness a lot of people within my close circle who have aged very, quote-unquote, gracefully, as many would say, in the sense that they didn't just put a self-limiting belief on their function. This is not to say they didn't also share the fact that, you know, I don't seem to be able to eat as much as I, I used to or need to. Uh, I can't do as, as much activity um, as frequently. So, you know, all of my relatives over a certain age, a fairly young age as far as I would consider it, have noted that, it, yeah, it takes longer to recover from things. This is a fact. <laughs> like, this is not a, um, you know, of course it can be like, notable in the sense that, oh, shoot, I, I wish I could do, you know, some of the more intensive back-to-back -back stuff I used to be able to do. It's not that they're not, you know, noting the changes or denying the changes by any stretch of the imagination, but they are still doing everything they can to live, you know, in a, in a very active way, in a way that drives enjoyment and curiosity and really doesn't write off their body as something that, like, oh, I'm this age, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Uh, and, you know, I've been given some old labels, so I've had a lot of ageism thrown my way over the years, and in my 20s, I actually really couldn't wait to be in my 30s because I thought, oh, maybe people will take me seriously and not just, like, pat me on the head and say, oh, well, you're, when you're my age. I never received that from, uh, and this is, like, uh, it relatively infrequent and from people who didn't really know me all that well, uh, to say the least. But even then, I realized when I got into, into my 30s, it was like, oh, no, never mind. Like, that's just... It, it is the way it is sometimes, and it's not really a reflection of me. It's based on somebody else's perspective. But I've had uh, a few things that m people who are in their uh, 60s and 70s typically contend with, and I've contended with those since I was uh, in my like late teens and early 20s and, and still do deal with those. And so, you know, if I viewed my system as being diseased because of this early development and early development of things like arthritis and osteoporosis is not great, but if I viewed that as an inherent disease state, I feel like I would have a very different perspective um, on, on what I can do and what I can accomplish as a human being. And so as much as outwardly I have not gotten to that stage. I know inwardly there are certain tissues that have um, been much more aged and I've had to contend with certain uh, symptoms because of that and I've had to make changes. But I certainly haven't written myself off and I hope to never do that, although I fully understand our perspective can change over time. And that's a, <coughs> excuse me, that's a really good example of choices that we get to make in life so for you, for example, when you were like, you were young and you were given a, a diagnosis of like an age-related disease, like osteoporosis, for example, arthritis, for example, we all get choices in life. You can choose to be a victim and be woe is me and be like, oh, I guess I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to do that and go down that road. Or you can choose to take more of a hero mentality and be like, wow, okay, that's, that's that. Great. What can I actively do and act on to you know, prove it wrong, to make it as good as possible, and to go down that road. We all have that choice. So things happen in life, and a lot of times 
They just happened. There's nobody to blame. It was just a matter of a circumstance. But we all get to choose when and where we take responsibility and how we choose to act on the circumstances that come at us in life. So I guess that's a just high-level overview or high-level high takeaway for, for any podcast. But that's something that we encounter in our practice with clients sometimes, right? When something happens and we can encourage them, which road do you want to take? Because ultimately we do have choices to make and that's going to lead us to um, our outcomes down the road. And I do want to just touch on like, it's not when you do get something, you know, that's, that is limiting your function. It's not about proving it wrong um, or, or trying to like just power through and keep doing what you used to be able to do. It is just about uh, learning through that and, and not writing off your own potential. That's the biggest thing. It's just, it does require change. And I've spoken to a couple of um, people recently about this. Like it, it is totally normal, I think, to grieve the loss of, of function. It of is like I, there are a couple things I can't do that I still do in my dreams, <laughs> but, and it's, I think it's very normal and healthy to acknowledge that and like grieve the things that you really don't have the function to be able to do anymore, um, but that you loved to do. And and so it's not to minimize that or to like power through and say, well, I'm going to do it despite everything else. Because if we get into the habit of trying to like prove anything wrong, well, we're more likely to injure ourselves, quite frankly. But if you still remember, you still have a lot of potential. There are other things that we can direct our attention to. Like we have clients of all ages, and I love working with all ages because um, you know I've I've seen people uh, from their sixties into their seventies, the same in individuals, and see them have way more function as they hit their seventies than they did when I met them a decade prior. So that tells me, and that's without fancy supplements, it's, it's with all the, you know, behavioral choices and environmental choices we can make. So like changing our environment in terms of the food we input or how our environment stimulates movement. It's, it's those kinds of things that have brought about that pronounced change. And until we know something different, that's the way that we have to keep, you know, trying to move forward and, um, and yeah, it, quote unquote age gracefully yes and that segues us nicely into the conversation about what do we actually know like concretely know not just based on you know the, the latest studies but what do we know helps us promote successful biological aging or you can consider these to be like natural anti-aging strategies if you want to take that kind of uh, approach so from a high level, just to name off a few, and some of the, the biggest ones are just a clean environment. So humans breathing in clean air, drinking clean water, uh, eating clean food, and I say clean food, like, <coughs> excuse me, food that are, are devoid of like pesticides or toxins, heavy, heavy metals, that kind of thing. It's hard to determine that from based on what you're getting at the grocery store these days. We don't have any meters to tell us what's what there, but humans not taking in an ex excess amount of toxins, whether it's through air, water, or food, is probably the most impactful thing that can lead to um, slow aging or a positive cellular health. Um, outside that, the magic pill is exercise. We know that exercise or regular physical activity changes the body in a cellular way that nothing else we do um, can touch. And that's why, again, move daily, name of the company, because if you're not doing that, 
all these other things that you want to do or try are not going to be nearly as impactful or matter nearly as much. So exercise is that really big key one. And then from there, adequate sleep. Um, you know, we have research, lots of research that shows us that deep sleep, for example, fends off Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's a lot of sleep research that is correlated to very positive health outcomes. People who do not sleep or have trouble sleeping, uh, that leads down the road of um, pro progressive aging um, and progressive disease states. And then love, community purpose. Uh, these are kind of intangible things, but if you, again, you speak to centenarians, you look to blue zones, that kind of stuff. Again, correlations. We know that these type of intangibles are extremely important um, to go towards graceful aging. Um, <coughs> anything to add to that? There was actually an article recently touching on the benefits of um, communicating with strangers as a way to help your health and uh it, it sort of it was interesting because it taps into our earlier podcast this season where we spoke about your community being actually quite a broad one so it might be the people that you're closest with no matter whether that's one person or or three or or ten um but it also encompasses like that person that you see on the street while walking your dog that you nod hello to or the person who um, or the bus driver that you see most mornings when taking the bus to work that kind of thing and so there uh, yeah the article was just saying we reap a lot of uh, I guess benefit from a mental health standpoint which then influences mental health is health um, so it influences our entire system by saying hello to strangers nodding and smiling like it doesn't have to be a full-blown conversation so I, I found that was interesting um because it emphasizes that like your community doesn't have to be this like big organized thing that you're part of regularly uh it it, it is something you're a part of by proxy of leaving you know your house every day and it being out and intuitively at least for me and my lived experience when when I'm kind and I have a kind interaction, it, it makes me feel better. Like, it makes me feel healthier. It, it's just intrinsically, it's a thing that happens, right? Or, and like, again, speaking to a stranger, having an interaction with a stranger, it just makes you feel like you're, you're part of something bigger. You're not secluded alone on an island that you can communicate, make eye contact, have a smile with somebody you don't even know. You have no idea what's going on in their life. Again, it's just a little bit of perspective that, there's a lot more to this life in this world than maybe the momentary problems or the stress that we're dealing with. So to have those moments where we get a little, you know, de-stress moment by having that connection, it's, it's you know, it makes sense that it can be so impactful for health and longevity. It makes us feel a lot less lonely, whereas like being on social media, as much as we can have interactions with people it's not really with people like it's it, it's disconnected mm -hmm. um whereas being able to see somebody else's face and respond to their facial expression uh is very different and it's innately human to connect with people in that way absolutely yep so freya why don't we move into the self-assessment piece mm-hmm all right, so um, with all this chat about aging uh, being a natural process or being viewed as a disease state, we did mention that, you know, right now, 
there's still a lot more to learn about the process of aging. And what we can control is the quality of life, well, to a degree, the quality of life that we experience now. There are still going to be a lot of things we cannot control. And um, we don't know how long our life is going to go on. And that's not, to, life is the longest thing we'll do. Um, but we often say life is short. <laughs> And yet it is the longest thing we'll ever do. So we don't know the length of it. But what we can do is make choices um, to try and improve the quality of it. And if we do have the, you know, privilege, sorry, aging is a privilege. So if we do have the privilege to make it to, I don't know, whatever, insert your <laughs> ideal <laughs> age here, um, then the choices we make in our 20s, 30s, 40s, and so on, will help us have a higher quality of life at that point in time, but also throughout time, which is, to me, the most important thing, because we do not know how much time we have. So there are a few things that you can do to sort of self-assess uh, some of the metrics that are correlated with a high quality of life at an older age or older ages. And so um, to put that simply, we can't say that any of these things cause that high quality of life, but they certainly are strongly correlated with it. They're also correlated with lower disease burdens. So that just means like lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes, perhaps lower risk of uh, developing COPD, although smoking is like the greatest predictor of that, lower risk of developing um, Alzheimer's as well, and multiple other cardiovascular diseases that we often see um, in, in older years. So the first one that you can check in on is walking speed. And this is a self-assessment that you can choose to um, I don't know, measure like once a year or if you're <laughs> doing a walking intervention, meaning you're trying to get yourself to um, walk more consistently or for longer durations, then taking a little bit of a baseline measure can be a really nice way of self-assessing long-term. Because what we do find is sometimes people don't realize just how much progress they've made because, you know, you see yourself every single day and you experience your life in a way that you don't measure it uh, every single day the way an external like clinician might and that's good that's healthy we don't suggest that you do that but sometimes it can be nice to have little snapshots here and there of like oh hey I couldn't have done that last year and now I can so one of these things is walking speed and at the bottom end of the range the speed that's correlated with a decline in um in quality of life but also lifespan is around 1.3 miles per hour which is a roughly two kilometers per hour or Canadians so we do kilometers but you know Canadians also seem to always offer up both for our American friends <laughs> at the top end of the range um, a walking speed that's correlated with you know greater quality of life or better outcomes with age is around two miles per hour, I believe. So we're looking at roughly three kilometers per hour, which isn't really that fast. Um, like it's meaning it's very reasonable. And if you can walk, that's very accessible. And um, one of the ways in which you can measure this is by walking for an hour and seeing how much ground you cover. Or you could do a shorter test. So if you do have a longer, like a 
you already have a fair bit of uh, cardiovascular capacity, yeah, walk for an hour, see how far you can go. But if you don't have a huge amount of cardiovascular capacity, and this is something you're trying to build, then you could do the six-minute walk test. So you can um, go somewhere outside, like up and down a street, and you walk as far as you can in a six-minute time span, and you record it. What we will do with this podcast is include, um, there are different distances that are correlated as being, you know, quite healthy and sound for different age groups. And so we'll include that chart in the post of this podcast. But that's another way that you could um, just self-assess and see kind of what your baseline is right now. And then if you're applying an intervention, even if, if you already walk a fair bit, but you're trying to, I don't know, um, include some other form of cardiovascular capacity, you could see how that um, distance increases or whether it even stays stable. Because the if you are really fit cardiovascularly, I will not suggest you do the six-minute test because there is a ceiling effect on it, although you could do it just out of sheer curiosity, which I like to do. But mm -hmm. anyway, um, the other thing you can do to improve it is uh, in the wintertime here in Canada, a lot of people may not be able to go outside as often based on the surface. Like if it's super icy here in Toronto, mm -hmm. it is pretty high risk to go for a walk. So you can do stair intervals. So that doesn't mean running up and down the stairs. just means steadily going up and down the stairs for 60 seconds. And if you drip feed those in a few times a day, that is correlated with increasing your, uh, actually that's causative of increasing your VO2 max. And that is correlated with longevity and a higher health span. So it doesn't have to be that you go for a walk. If you, if you can't do that because of your environment, you can do uh, stair climbs and those are incredibly beneficial. You could also, if you're somebody who already has a, a sport that takes you outside and involves some degree of walking, for some of those, like golf, for example, for some of that walking time, you can pick up the pace a little bit. It doesn't mean you need to like speed walk the entire time. Uh, if that's not accessible to you, there are a lot of other forms of cardiovascular activity and you bolstering that a little bit um, can go a really long way in terms of your quality of life and, and certainly your lifespan. Yes, absolutely. Great. Glad I love you walking agree. fast, walking yes. with a purpose. I'm that guy that people see walking on the street and they're like, whoa, he must have somewhere to go. <laughs> yes. I look weird when I walk. Anyway, uh, the next thing is grip strength because it's something that's needed in everyday life. You know, we carry things around. Uh, it's a very important thing. Now, this is hard to measure on its own um, because it requires a dynamometer, but being able to grip things like, <coughs> sorry, but being able to grip things and carry them impacts everyday function. So, if you haven't done much strength work and you don't have a dynamometer at home, like most people, what you can do is uh, see how far you can actually carry your groceries a set distance. Or, you know, if you don't carry your groceries back and forth somewhere, you could go into your backyard or even in your house, carry, grab two things uh, and carry them a set distance and see how long you can carry those things for, something that would apply to your everyday life. Uh, now, if you introduce strength work after, so go to the gym, do some cable work, some dumbbell work, something that, you know, challenges your grip. Then you can reassess by carrying your groceries again to see if it got a little bit easier, see if you can carry them further. And then uh, if you have done a bit of strength work, as opposed to those who have not, uh, one of the best things you can do at the gym is actually just do a hang test. So just go to the pull-up bar, throw two hands on there, and hang for as long as you can, because that's a good challenge against your body weight. And if you can hang on for 60 seconds, that is an excellent result. 
Um, I think I've seen some carnivals where they're like, hang for two minutes, and they like grease the pole up, and it makes it really, really hard. Well, if you can hang for one minute at the gym under fair circumstances, your grip's uh, pretty darn good. So grip strength makes just everything easier as you age. Yeah, and to be clear, you don't need to hang until you feel like your shoulders are just going to yeah, fall off. Like, it's it's a relative. The reason we're recommending that if you've already been engaging in strength training, the reason we're recommending that you do the hanging test is because you are likely already lifting things um, like barbells and stuff uh, or dumbbells that are a specific load. And we know that over time that load may change, but you could get a better baseline by measuring something that's like relative to your body weight. So strength that's relative to your body weight, in this case means you are hanging um, using both hands. That's that's going to be a more consistent way of measuring it than assessing, you know, I deadlifted X number of pounds now and five years later it's at this weight. Uh, you know, that, that can change a lot more, whereas even though your body weight can fluctuate with age, it's a nice way of gauging your own relative internal internal strength. And with the... Yeah, with the carrying of things, like at home, you can just choose a set distance. You don't have to even carry it as long as you want. You could just see how easy it is. Like, could you make it home from the grocery store without um, too much trouble or not? Yeah, and like, look, if you're doing strength training, if you've been doing strength training for years, your grip strength is going to be pretty good. Like, you, that's, we just know that. Strength training is, again, one of those things that just correlates really well to longevity, like strength does, but... Um, you, like you said, if you want to test to see how it improves over the year, pick a closed loop system like hanging or carrying one object. So another test is one that I, I know we have spoken about we've, or we've written about and that has made its way into mainstream media for the last, I don't know, about like eight years, which is great because um, it, it is a very easy to apply test and this is a ground to standing test. So uh, most people will have seen the strategy of um, crossing the feet at the ankles. So you step like one foot over top of the other and then lowering yourself down without using your hands or using your knees. Now, you can also use other strategies to get down to the ground and back up. The key here is that you're trying to see how easy it is and how many contact points you need to use to lower yourself down to the ground and back up. There has also been attention drawn to balance tests recently. Now, balance tests have been done in a multitude of ways to assess for neurological uh, disorders or decline um, and are being correlated with longevity. But what, we, what I will say is that as much as as um, changes in balance can signify less good things, it's not enough for preventing fall risk. So you might have good balance, but if you never experience all the level changes required to get down to the ground and back up, falls can happen to literally anyone. And if you never experience those levels in between, you are more likely to suffer more consequences from a fall. So if you're able to control your body up and control your body down or the other way around um, with relative ease, then it means you have good relative strength and good mobility. This also minimizes um, risk of falling because you'll have less fear. Whereas somebody who is afraid to get down to the ground, if they trip, 
they may have also lost balance control or not, but if they trip, they are more likely to tense up and fall in a way that will not be um, advantageous for their joints or tissues. So see if you can get down to the ground and back up. It's, it's a very simple test, but it can become, uh, become a fun, like, party trick, you know? <laughs> How well can your friends do it? <laughs> Speaking of which, I was hanging out with my 88-year-old grandmother the other day, and I actually asked her if she could do the uh, ground-to-standing test. I asked her if she could just get down to the ground and stand back up. And so she was like, oh, of course I can. And she got down, and she stood back up, and she was very proud of herself. And I was really excited for her because she had a stroke not too long ago, and she's had made a great recovery. And it's wonderful to see that even after a health event like that, that you can regain and surpass maybe the physical um, abilities where you were at. So that was a, a really fun moment for me to be able to see her do that. And then she was super proud to show me that she could sit down and stand up from her chair without using the uh, armrests, which is also a really important thing. And that takes us nicely into the next uh, test or correlation we make, which is the sit to stand test. So this one's quite simple. You get a chair, like a regular height chair, cross your hands over your chest and sit down with control and stand back up from that chair as many times as possible within 30 seconds. So again, with control is a very, key, very key point here. You're not just like falling down and going up. Um, but this is another one that correlates really well with the coordination and the leg strength and endurance that you need to have as you, as you age. So we'll, uh, again, we'll include all the norms in our post, but that uh, the sit to standing and the ground to standing test were, um, it was just great to see my grandma do that. I'm very mm -hmm. proud of her. And uh, there is a modified one. So if 30 seconds is too much for, for somebody, like if they, in the context of your grandmother, for example, we would have done the five times sit to stand where it's different. We ask the individual to sit down and stand back up just five times, and then we time how long that took. So they're similar, but they both have normative charts, and we'll include those, um, as Dane said, in the, in the post. Indeed. All right, so let's uh, just wrap this up quickly here. So uh, again, health span versus lifespan. Do we really need to live longer or do we need to be living better in our later years? It comes back to the question that we're trying to, trying to ask and trying to resolve. So <clears throat> anti-aging proposes uh, that they'll help people by both classifying aging as a disease and targeting it with treatments, which inevitably cost a lot. Um, so none of the tests we just mentioned are going to miraculously get, um, get better with oral or IV treatment or anything like that. That's something that we need to physically do, and drugs aren't just going to magically make us better at sitting to standing or, uh, you know, grip strength. <laughs> well, just relative strength. Exactly. Um, you know, like we, we've said this before, so we will not continue to like go into it uh, right at this moment, but uh, you cannot replace your body's need for movement. Nothing will replace the body's need for movement and, um, and what movement does for every single cellular function in our body is, is pretty incredible based on our current understanding. And I, I don't think that our understanding is going to switch and be like, oh, it's actually not good for you. I think it'll just get deeper in terms of our understanding of what systems, uh, well, not what systems it influences, but how it influences each system on top of what we already know. Mm -hmm. And again, we'll just recap that, it, you know, if you, 
if you view aging as something to be really um, afraid of, then of course that can modify your behaviors to sort of fulfill that. So it's unfortunate because then we can become self-limiting rather than seeing that we do still have potential to change our outcome and that, you know, things will change. Yes, change is, is absolutely inevitable. What we do when we're in our 80s, I don't think should be <laughs> like what we do in our 20s. Um, honestly, most of us don't really get the feedback we perhaps needed from our bodies in our 20s or we didn't listen to it as mm -hmm. a more accurate way of putting it. Uh, so it's not about you know, trying to sustain the exact same output, if that's the goal, then we are bound to be disappointed mm -hmm. because, and no supplement or, or procedure is going to help us retain that at it, like in our later decades of life. Um, but if you view aging as something to, you know, like if it's a disease state or to be fearful of, then unfortunately this can lead to um, greater incidences of, of depression or of, you know, a loss of, essentially a loss of, of hope that might have led to action because any of the signs and symptoms of aging, like wrinkly skin or um, more stiffness or longer recovery times, all of which we can agree are actually quite, uh, quite normal and consistent with the aging process. It doesn't mean you can't do those things, but how you do them and how often you do them has to to be altered a little bit based on your body's feedback. But if you are discouraged by all those signs and symptoms to the point where you now don't want to do those things, then that that is a problem. Like we need to really address how aging is viewed because that fear-driven message I think is, is really dangerous <laughs> in the sense that it can perpetuate um, a lot of the like negative, well, ageism is never positive, <laughs> truthfully, but it can uh, perpetuate ageism, which is very negative and, and like self-limiting and sees people who are aging as having less potential. And I just think that's a really unfortunate thing. Maybe they won't be Olympians, but if they're in their 70s or 60s, but at the end of the day, that doesn't like, it's just really unfortunate to, to write off our own bodies when we get to a specific age. I did also want to touch on the fact that um, if we believe aging to be inherently dangerous, um, a disease state, or bad, then this can also perpetuate illness behavior. And illness behavior um, is the belief, I'm just going to read a, a quote, the belief that one is threatened by illness and in need of protective action, including treatment and medical care. And it is in typically initiated um, by experience in physical function and the symptoms are interpreted as an underlying threat to health. Um, with illness threats, they are typically the product of personal experience, i.e. like symptoms or signs, and as well as uh, communication from others and media exposure. So this is all stuff that we've touched on throughout this, and, and we do know that that is really tricky because, um, you know, the the effect of our our mindset around something and our interpretation of a sign and symptom changes so much about our outcomes. Yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty powerful place to uh, to wrap things up right there. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of this comes back to uh, critical thinking and being able to think for ourselves because we're always taking in things from the media, as Freya just said. Um, so discern, ask 
you know, what is the actual problem? Is it a problem for you? Do you need a solution? Is there a solution that you can act on yourself? Like I said in this podcast earlier, we know certain things that within our environment and our daily actions that we can do to make ourselves age gracefully. So if you can tackle those and avoid having to dive into something that is unproven, uh, that might be the best result for everyone involved. So uh, thank you again for listening to the Move Daily Health podcast. And uh, you can find us at movewelldaily.com. You can follow us at move underscore daily underscore eds. And uh, that's it for today. And we will catch you next time on the Move Daily Health podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.